This is SciBite, episode 92, for May 7th, 2013. Hi everyone and welcome to SciBite, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly science podcast live Tuesday evenings over at jblive.tv at 7.30pm Pacific, fresh Wednesday mornings over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. My name is Chris and joining us every single week is our host Heather. Hey there Heather. Hey there Chris. Hey Heather, happy science to you. Happy science. So what are we going to talk about today? Today we're going to take a look at habitable zone exoplanets, diabetes treatment advances, Water in Jupiter, living on Mars, spacecraft updates, curiosity news, and as always, take a peek back into history and up in the sky this week. Well, holy moly, Heather, let's kick it all off with the news. Where do we start tonight? All right, exoplanets. We are constantly discovering more of them. You know, there'll be you know, the stories like, hey, we found a couple now. Now there are three new potentially rocky planets that they found inside the habitable zone of their stars. They've used about three years worth of data to get this. So, I mean, as of uh, April, more than 2,700 potential planets have been discovered. About 120 of them confirmed because Kepler, in order for it to become a potential planet, they have to see This is the one where they're looking at the dip in starlight as the planet passes in front of it. Right. So they see the dip three times. Then it says, okay, now you're on to the next level. Now you're a potential planet. Then it comes to on-Earth observations where they look at more details. Can they look at the the swing of the star? Is the planet exerting some sort of force upon the star so you can actually see it move back and forth? Hmm. Or other uh, various more detailed analysis where they say, okay, now it has reached the second check mark. Now it is, you know, a quote unquote planet. We identify it as such. And at this rate, they're expecting where the 90% of them are actually real. Uh-huh. So, but inside the habitable zone is really where obviously our keen interests lie. So these planets that have a really small radius less than about twice Earth's size, pretty much is a really good indicator that a planet is rocky. But right now, it's kind of hard to nail that down, whether it is or not. Hmm. You can kind of be like, all right, it's there, it's this size, really most likely rocky. Right. Can't give it the three check marks and the smiley face to it. But And by rock, you just mean it's not like a gas giant. Or or something like that. You don't mean like it has mountains and all that kind of stuff. You just well, mean it's like mostly in, rock solid. Yeah, solid. Yeah. Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. You know, these kind of solid right. pieces of material. You know, each of those can have mountains and craters or whatever. But of course, we're not quite up to viewing that on those planets yet. We're, we're happy we're seeing them. So... We're looking at two different stars. One of them has two planets, and the other one has another. The Kepler-62 is a red dwarf star, about two-thirds the size of our sun, probably a couple hundred degrees Celsius cooler, 
about 20% is bright. So it's, it's a little bit smaller, about two-thirds the size. 20% is bright. It lies about 1,200 light years away. And we know that it has five planets. Now, two of them we've discovered are some of the smallest exoplanets we've we found inside the habitable zone yet. Now, the habitable zone of various stars is you can't just measure it saying, you know, it is, you know, 50,000 miles by 200,000 miles or whatever it might be. It changes depending on how bright or how hot that specific sun is, mm. that star. If it's a really hot, then the habitable zone is further out. That's where water can exist in a liquid form on the surface. So depending on how warm or how cold the star is, you have to move that scale back and forth in order to have a planet lie in that area. So this one has two of those. One of So now these kind of thinking that they might possibly covered in totally covered in water or ice, depending on the kind of atmosphere they have. Now, some scientists are kind of uncertain about that, but they're thinking that probably rocky, possibly covered in water or ice. Now, of course, that would mean life would be very, very different. Should anything be there? Or the planet would obviously be quite different from Earth. Granted, we are two-thirds covered in water, but we still have a nice third of that that we tromp about and listen to our internet. <laughs> Shows over. Right. <clears throat> Thankfully. So, yeah. So we're looking at these kind of, luckily they're giving very distinctive colors in the spectrum. So we can kind of really look at them. And so it's kind of making it easier to kind of differentiate between them. So Kepler, uh, one of them, its orbit is about 122 days long. So about a little over one and a half times the diameter of Earth. And then they're looking at, you know, uh, the other one orbit in that specific star is 267 days, mm. almost one and a half times, again, the, the Earth. So these are longer orbits, uh, which is why we're just now starting to spy these. And the link, because they have to spy it three times, Kepler has been running for about three years. So anything that has the orbit of similar to Earth of about a year, then it takes this long to really start identifying those planets. So this is kind of the this golden little period where we're looking at, okay, right now is the time where we're most likely to find kind of similar in orbit, in size, planets to the Earth. So we're looking at these things where it might be in the habitable zone. They, it's kind of funny. I, I was reading and they have like empirical habitable zone as I make my question, quote marks in air. And then the narrow habitable zone. And it's kind of the one of the articles differentiated as where liquid can exist if the planet has sufficient cloud cover mm -hmm. versus it can exist even without cloud cover. So think... Um, maybe Venus, where it's constantly under under cloud cover, mm -hmm. so it would you know change the temperature of the surface of the planet. So it would allow liquid water to be there. It would protect it from the sun uh, shining right on there to evaporate things off. So there's a lot of different scenarios that that would be. But so we're kind of looking at these 
going, all right, it's defining while this, these planets are, one's barely inside the habitable zone, one is. And so we're starting to like differentiate putting on graphs and tables, you know, at the bottom is like, here's a picture of our sun. Here's our planets, you know, and where we see our habitable zone being. And then above it, you know, it'll all start showing these other star systems. You can kind of see scaled up or down saying, hey, this planet is kind of in the warm, would be similar in warmth to Earth or more closer to Mars. So right now we have um, in the habitable zone area, this brings it up to about nine potential habitable worlds outside the solar system. Hmm. We're up to 18 more that are kind of on the waiting for confirmation list. Wow, that's exciting. Yeah, and oddly enough, you don't really think about it very often, but potential habitable exomoons. Oh, well, I, I could always think, use a moon. Yeah, well, think of, um, you know, this, uh, Saturn's moon, I believe. You know, it has the cloud cover. Mm-hmm. So it has methane on its surface. Or the moon that is, you know, completely covered in ice with an ocean underneath. You know, here in our own backyard. So... You know, or, like, at, uh, I, or like planet Vulcan's moon, where they had an ice monster. Blink, blink. <laughs> I, blink, I, stare, science. I always, uh, I always think the moon gets shortchanged, because it could make an awesome base there. You could always build an awesome base on a moon. Yeah, on a moon. On any moon. It doesn't have to be our moon, as long as you can get there. It can make a perfectly fine base. Now, <laughs> we, we have ones you know in our solar system that are ice, so you can... Imagine that there would be others out there. Yeah, sure. So we're kind of, they're kind of eyeing the end of Kepler's space telescope mission. Um, it only has so much fuel. It has, a, it has an end of life date. They're kind of extending that as long as they can. Yeah. Now they have a next generation mission that they're already, um, that they've already approved to launch in 2017. Hmm. That they'll be able to kind of look at the planets that are near the stars. So maybe they can take a finding those planets and being able to study them more in depth, possibly. I look so forward to kind it. Of, yeah, we're moving forward in these and kind of how many of them we spy and what else we discover about them. Kind of narrowing down the field of what's where and just kind of you know, this in general, what do they all look like? And how often can we see them? And how awesome is Kepler? I mean, jeez. Yes. And it's, it's amazing how they can look at those dips in light. And uh, then that just points them in the right direction and they can just go from there. Yep. And talked about it a couple of times, but uh, there are there are databases on the internet where if you, you know, you, me, anybody that's a listener or not a listener can go on and they say, look at the data and be like, hey. I see a, I see a dip in the in the light. I see a dip in the right, light. Something right. may be here. Right. Go use your pattern recognition engine that's built into your brain. Yes. <laughs> use the science between your ears. <laughs> All right, Heather. Well, uh, any other thoughts on that or are we ready to move on? Let's go. All right, then let's uh take a minute. I just want to have a just to make a quick recommendation this week if you'd like to support the Cybite program. Don't forget 
Ladies and gentlemen, you can head over to the Jupiter Broadcasting website, and at the bottom of that fantastic website are links down there for our affiliates. You click those links before you shop at one of those sites, and a portion of your shopping session is contributed to Jupiter Broadcasting, and I have right here my pick this week in my hot little hands. That right there is the Star Trek Countdown to Darkness paperback. Um, So I, I did this... For the last Star Trek movie that came out too, the, the 2009, mm-hmm. and uh, it makes all you know the movie makes a lot more sense. Like you, you knew a lot more information about that that starship that Spock had, how he got yeah. there, why he had it, kind of what led him up to entering the black hole. Um, so I haven't, I just got this today, so I haven't read it yet, but I'm hoping the paperback uh, this time around gives me the same insights to the new Star Trek movie. So if you'd like to grab this. Or anything else over at Amazon, just use the link we'll have in the show notes and uh, you will uh, support the network when you purchase that item. Also, just shipped, if you haven't got it yet, it's out now, the Star Trek The Next Generation Blu-ray Season 3. Yes. Ooh. Ooh, uh, it looks amazing. It uh, It's unbelievable. You wouldn't think something from the 80s could look so darn good. You just wouldn't think they like would have it. But they yeah. have it because the film is 4K. So the film is actually still higher resolution than what the Blu-ray is capable of. So that's how that's that's how that's how it works. So then they go yeah. through and they retouch up the, uh, you know, the visuals and the sound. Mm-hmm. They redo the sound. Oh, the sound, Heather. Oh, oh, it's really good. So both great picks. Oh. Very Star Trek-y. Been very Star Trek heavy picks. But yeah. what can I say? What can I say? All right. Thanks, everybody, who uh, uses our affiliate links to support the network. But Heather, with that file... The two byte news. Almost. I don't even know why it's two byte news. It's supposed to be the news bite. I guess I just flipped them around. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. The the band just like jumped up and just started playing. So that's I just true. I just it. you know I, was like, I might not have, let me you know, let me hold on. Let me get let me get the sheet back here. Now nah, that was my fault. I handed them the wrong sheet. Ah. That was my fault. I can't blame them. All right, that's so okay, band. just pretend like uh, you know what here. There we go. It's the news bite. <laughs> extra music. Yeah. Just for you. Of course, now i got to pay him extra for that, so everybody go get your comic book, dang it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Heather, what are we talking about in the news bite? All righty. They have a new possible diabetes treatment option mm. on the horizon. This sounds promising. Yeah, so they've discovered a hormone that actually holds promise for being a really effective treatment for type 2 diabetes. And that it might actually hold a role in type 1 or juvenile diabetes as well. So they've seen that betatrophin is primarily would be a treatment for type 2 diabetes. And they think it might play a role in, you know, 1 as well. But what it does is it boosts the number of beta cells, kind of slowing the progression of the autoimmune disease right when it's diagnosed. Hmm. Type 2 diabetes is you know, often caused by um, excessive weight or lack of exercise or it's kind of hits as adult onset. Mm-hmm. So you slowly start losing these what they call beta cells and you lose the ability to produce adequate amounts of insulin. Hmm. Now, in order to – what they kind of want to do is pr- providing this hormone that they discovered, the betatrophin, it actually lets diabetic – produce more of their own insulin producing cells oh so it's able to produce at up to 30 times the normal rate but what it does is it the new beta cells produce insulin only when it's called for for the body 
So it's like a natural regulation of the insulin. Amazing. So it's, and they know that the hormone already exists in human plasma. So it already exists in humans. So now what they did is they said, okay, well, we see it exists in humans. We can obviously see that it's doing something. So they took at, you know, a, you know, groups of animals that said, okay, they're going to kick out this gene that really weren't looking at before and say, okay, they saw, and then they saw at what was happening during pregnancy when there are more beta cells, when it's, the hormones goes up because her need for carbohydrate load and insulin, and it kind of goes forward. So what they're looking at is because they've already seen it in human plasma and they actually kind of see that it is directly, you know, kickstarting something that's already there, that they could look to human trials within three to five years, which is amazingly short for any of these things. Because most of the time we talk about it, you know, any of these breakthroughs and it's like, cool breakthrough, hmm. hooray, arms in air. Right. When is it coming? Years of testing, though. Needs years I of testing. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Like 10, yeah, yeah. 20 years before people start seeing yeah, it. Yeah. But this is like clinical trials within three to five years. Well, that's now, pretty accelerated. They, they wave their arms and say, okay, hold on. Hold your horses. There's still work to be done. I suppose Please. something negative could be found, which would delay it, too. Possible. But because it already exists, because we already have oh, yeah, it, right, yeah. the chances are much less right yeah that makes sense that's so encouraging you know so it's one of these things where maybe it's the body just that switch starts turning off mm-hmm. that produces that specific hormone and if you can take that hormone maybe you know do you need a shot you know insulin you need you know to watch it multiple times a day to kind of get a shot maybe you need this hormone it's just take it once a day and you're fine or get a shot once a week, or how often would you need it to actually kind of keep those levels to to a rate that you could actually continue to sort of regulate your own? And it's not just, you know, like the shot, but it's kind of giving you a Band-Aid or giving you a, you know, a, a pill that'll help things in the short term. You know, it's just sort of crutching this would be something that would help something that your body, it's just very natural. Right. There's not going to be the kind of like rejection or side effects or things that you would have from something that's purely chemical because it's something that's already existing in your body. So it's not like this foreign substance. It's not. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, it's very encouraging. Yeah. It's like um, a dimmer switch. So slowly but surely, you know, your body's turning it down and maybe this hormone could pop it back up so that right. it, you know, things are at a more even keel. Right. Yeah. Well, there you go, Heather. Wow, that's great. So um, Heather has uh, links to a uh, video interview from some of the researchers who are working on this right now, and uh, as well as an article at MediaExpress.com, which will be linked in the show notes if people like to check that out. Now, this next story reminds me of, like, uh, maybe if I have myself a big plate of sloppy spaghetti... And I got a little garlic bread, and I want to soak up some of that good red oh, sauce. Oh, gosh. 
I was really wondering where you're going with this. <laughs> Cat room, you are really confused right now. I was confused a lot. So almost we, too. This next story is is kind of like soaking up a little red sauce with my garlic bread, Heather. What's going on here? Okay, so just so everyone knows, this is soaking up venom in your blood. Oh, that sounds gross now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it does once you finish talking about spaghetti. <laughs> see, see, chat room. See. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I. I could have set that up better, I guess. It's okay. It's all good. So now what they've been able to do, moving along very, very smoothly, uh-huh. is um, take these kind of what they're calling tiny, like little sponges, but camouflage them as red blood cells, and then they could go through your body and soak up toxins from anthrax to snake venom to various things. Wow, that'd so be what they're great. Doing, <laughs> so what they're doing is back the. Main strategy of like bacteria and poisons is to poke holes in cells and you know distribute their internal chemical balance, causing to burst and all sorts of awful, terrible things happen. Mm-hmm. So with these, and you know, it's you can't really do a catch-all treatment for a lot of these things because you know bee venom or snake venom or mm. anthrax, all these different things mm-hmm. are attacking in different ways, so you can kind of get around it in some way. So what they're able to do is take these tiny spherical cores of uh, lactic acid byproduct, which is kind of forms naturally during uh, the mat- metabolism of the human body. And so then they take that and they use the, it's kind of weird and gross, but they use the skin of a red blood cell to wrap it up. And so then they're able to use that. So they have this core wrap it in a red blood cell. So it looks like a red blood cell to everything. So it's able to kind of lure in. It's, it's wearing camouflage. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's exactly wearing camouflage. And it's kind of luring in all the the bad stuff. Gross. Yeah, and so it's, I mean, these things are like 100 times smaller than human hair. They could be in just a tiny amount of blood. So kind of easy to make, you know, an effective dose. Yeah. So they go out as a decoy lure in these toxins, you know, they can do, again, like strep throat, bee venom, any of these things. And they bind it. When they go through to poke through the cell, they kind of stick onto it. They're like, ha ha, gotcha. So then they're really kind of attached and preoccupied with this. So it's flowing through the blood vessels and you could, they, the body can actually digest it huh. then. So kind of kill off the whole thing. Now, they gave an experiment. They gave 18 mice a lethal dose of MRSA, which is a really resistant um, uh, staphylococcal toxin. And only half the poor little mice got the dose of these nanosponges. Now, if you didn't get it, those poor little mice died. But all but one of the treated ones survived completely. So, wow. So they're hoping to see you know, whether this kind of a method can work in human blood or against other toxins. Um, they're hoping maybe even scorpion, scorpion venom, uh, like I talked at the beginning, anthrax, or any of these type of, any of these bacteria or venoms that use this sort of similar uh, process or strategy of attacking the body. Then could these little animal sponges sit there and grab onto these and... You know, they say, hey, even if it works for certain types of bacteria, you know, if 
The doctor knows you have a bacterial infection, but don't doesn't know quite what's causing it. Can't necessarily identify the exact narrow band because hmm. some of these need different kinds of, you know, treatments or, you know, uh, treatment options for them in order to attack that specific strain. Yeah. But maybe this could be so that it injects it and you have these little sponges and that soaks up all the bacterial that's causing the illness. And then suddenly it's more like a catch-all. Mm-hmm. They can go through and it can sweep through the body and help this. Wow. You no. Know, in that kind of a way. Now that seems like the way of the future. That yeah. really seems like some far out stuff. That's probably need some testing. That might need a little more testing than the other stuff, Heather. Well, yeah, much more testing than <laughs> the hormones that are already right. in your body. <laughs> right. Yeah. But again, it's very promising to me because I mean, I've known uh history of things where they're trying to know people where they're trying to like, okay, there's something wrong and you have an infection somewhere. Hmm, bite lip. We're not quite sure where or what. Mm. Hold that thought until we figure out what we need to give you. And then can't quite figure it out. All right, we'll take these string of two to three drugs. Something will work. Now, if they could give, you know, that in your blood or maybe it's in a place that, you know, your body really doesn't want to like hook up the antibiotics and the bacteria in a happy way. So put it in your blood and everywhere where your blood goes, then those sponges could, you know, help out. So it's definitely farther away than, than our poor little hormones we were talking about, but very, very interesting treatment. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you never know. Maybe one day after somebody gets bit by a snake, there'll be a little shot of this stuff they can take and it'll, little robots will go in in disguise and clean up the blood. Well, Kind of like robots, robots in disguise. <laughs> you like what I do? All right, All right very, very subtle. You know what I have here? I have a band, and you know what they want to play for us? Two bite news. Robots in disguise. All right, Heather. That was very good. They they had the warm up earlier. Yeah, yeah. They I think that warm up. I think time. it helps. So I guess what we just need to do is to get them no. into shape. Just Make them play twice. No. No. Right, yeah. You know, they should no, just get their I, I, act together. It, it's okay. They can practice before the show. Good point. I hope they do. So in the two-byte news, I think I, my my spider sense is tingling. We're going to talk about Jupiter. Yes. Jupiter. It's a good planet. Yeah. Yeah. It's I've, a good name. Yeah. Yeah. I like Jupiter. Yeah. So water in the clouds of Jupiter. So go back. and There's a great deal of it. How did it get there? Back in 1994, Comet Shoemaker-Levy 9, uh, some people may remember that's the comet that just plowed right into Jupiter. Yes. And it left behind millions of gallons of water. Didn't quite hear that or think of that the first time around, really. No. So, and the water that it, it impacted actually makes 95% of the water in Jupiter's upper atmosphere now. So they'd seen Whoa, the really? water in the upper atmosphere, but... It was until recently that they could actually hard determine that water from that comet was the reason why that water was there. Okay, that's interesting. So they have these high-resolution maps that kind of looked at the entirety of Jupiter's atmosphere. And they found this really concentrated peak Mm. in the southern hemisphere 
right where Shoemaker Levy hit. So, so, it, so it brought along the water. Yep, it dumped millions of gallons of water right into the surface. They can tell it's not from any of its icy moons because that would have been spread out more evenly around the planet. Okay. Uh, you know. So what is this? Does this imply that uh, this is we've just witnessed a, a feasible way for perhaps water being seeded on our own planet? Possibly. I know. Um, I know they've also talked about. Was it? At some point, somebody said, "Hey, how to get water to Mars? Get throw, a comet in there. Yeah, throw an asteroid at it. <laughs> not, not necessarily asteroid. That would not do a lot of good, except <laughs> blow things up. Be a heck of a show, comet. Heather. Heck of a show. The, the the kind that has lots of water. Well, uh, yeah. It's like I remember when that comet hit. I remember going out into my yard and spying it and seeing it through oh, my yeah. telescope. Oh yeah, that not was the just... actual collision, but the little black eye marks on the planet. Ninety four wasn't that long ago. I remember that. No, clear as a bell. Uh, let's talk a little Mars One. Yes, Mars One. That crazy Netherlands-based group who wants to make a Mars colony. One-way trip, and they're going to fund it through a reality show. Mm. <laughs> so, yes, everyone kind of nod very... Uh, yeah, yeah. Nod your head and smile. That's but, just because it sounds like the plot to a sci-fi movie gone wrong. Yes. Now, we'll see how far they go. They're already in their, quote-unquote, um, astronaut selection time, mm-hmm. which began on, oh yeah, April 22nd. Okay. You know, they're saying, okay, by 2023, we're going to have four of these people there on their one-way trip. And then every two years, they'll get some more people there. And we'll see how many people survive and how long. No, that's not what they say. Okay. I was going to say, Heather, hold on. Now I'm interested. (laughs) (laughs) That's not what they say. Okay. But that's kind of what it is, isn't it? That is kind of what it is. A little bit. Like if they actually go, these are one-way trips. Yeah. it's And and it's kind of funny because one – they're looking at where they want to go because they want to minimize the contamination of, you know, they're not going to get possibly indigenous local Mars life they want. So what's interesting is they're not looking for anyone based upon an academic background. They're not going for science. It's not going to be their focus. They're going to have some scientific gear come with them. Well, I mean, what are they going to do once they get there? I don't know. Read comics? Their their whole point is like finding people who can, that's just psychological stability. It's like, can we lock you in a tin can with other people and you won't kill each other long enough for us to make a really good reality show? Huh. It seems like that's like the... And it's kind of sad. It really made me sad that they they said, you know, okay, we'll we'll have a little bit of you know weight that we'll say, okay, you know, they can send some scientific equipment. They're not going to have any idea. It's just like what the people want to happen to come with them. There's no like over idea. Like that's I too bad because like kind of- I thought like season one would be the trip there. Season two would be them setting up camp, and then season three would be the scientific equipment coming that they need to set up. But then something horrible goes wrong, and there's a lot of drama. And then at the last minute, the stuff lands just fine, and they set it up. Wouldn't that be great? Like a three-season arc. I just wrote that whole thing for them. Yeah, but, well, you know, if you're going on the assumption that reality shows are, are to- you know, completely penned in beforehand, oh, totally not. <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> I look to the side. I look up. <laughs> Eyes look 
look I, anywhere except at the microphone. I like your um, theater of the mind you're giving us here. This is nice. There you go. <laughs> well, so, hopefully, hopefully they go there and do something of value. Yeah, I, I mean, I they're love not going to go though. See what happens about it, but hmm. we sh- we shall see. Yeah, we shall it's, see. It's, it's although somebody, if if uh, I mean, if if it happens, it's going to be interesting to watch. I'll watch it. Yeah, I will. Yeah, yeah. There, you would too. You would too. He's going. I will read the wiki page on it. No, and I you, might watch. Okay. Clip. No. No, come on, come on. If there is a TV show about people traveling to Mars, you're not going to watch that. You've watched worse shows. Come on, you watch that. I don't watch a lot of TV shows. I don't either. In but chat room, why are you suggesting all the different people that you're going to send to Mars? <laughs> it is only making me cry. You're not getting people off. You're not voting people off the island. Wow. It's, that's not what you're doing Voting here. Voting them out the airlock instead, right? <laughs> no, we're sending people to Mars. It's making me sad that they're not specifically choosing based on scientific I know, right? You know, like, background. Like, and then yeah. you guys are wanting to send all sorts of crazy people that you just don't want to deal with. Well, I mean, if you're, gonna, if you're not going to send scientists, you might as well send somebody that's going to raise awareness. Yeah, send somebody. Yeah, that's Ben Affleck. Send Ben Affleck. Some of the people at the chat room. We don't need him back here. Send Ben. That's what we do. We send all the celebrities we don't need anymore. Just send them to Mars. <laughs> that, Fish shaking here. You guys are sending who to Mars? This is put Ben and Affleck. Put Ben Affleck. And. <laughs> all right, Heather, I got something that might cheer you up. The SciBite 2000 tells me we have a little incoming communications. Are you ready? We do. <laughs> No, we are not allowed to send William Shatner unless William Shatner wants to go. And then only William Shatner can go. All right. Well, you can email the show, SciBite at JupiterBroadcasting.com or hit the contact link at the top of the Jupiter Broadcasting website. What are we covering this week, Heather? All righty. Peter, a.k.a. Corliss from the chat room, sent me a, a story. It was about how last year, on April the 4th, 2012, they just announced that the Fermi Space Telescope or the Fermi spacecraft was almost collided with a dead Cold War spy satellite. Oh, just uh, uh, just like almost like I guess space junk. Yeah, like totally collided, smashed into each other. They were they occupied the same space about thirty milliseconds within each other. M- milliseconds. Like that's how close they I mean, geez, that is scary. We gotta start yeah. shoot, we gotta start shooting stuff down. Yeah, there's like an automated generator port. There is the NASA Robotic Conjunction Assessment Rick Risk Analysis Team. Nice. So it's these people that look at all the different they track all this different debris and anything orbiting the Earth that's larger than four inches. So they get these automatic reports that send say, Hey, something's going to hit your spacecraft. And so the team, you know, got it. They're like, huh. Like one week beforehand, they say, um, giant one-ton spy satellite about to hit our spacecraft. That doesn't sound good. So they kind of like, okay, well, we'll see what the orbit looks. Like days later, not looking any better. Days later, not looking any better. And so they're expecting to like pass. At first, they were like going to be passed within 700 feet of each other. And that is way, way, way too close. Yeah. Comfort mm-hmm. was it? Um, a few years back, they there was an estimate of some two satellites were going to pass within you know uh, one thousand 
some odd feet, uh, like okay. a little over 300 meters okay. of each other. And they were watching, and then things go silent. And then they see piles of debris flying away. Uh-oh. So 700 feet was way too much, not what they wanted to do. So they actually, it has these thrusters on it that they say, okay, well, at the end of its life, we're going to uh, take it to a lower orbit, let it burn up in the atmosphere. That way it won't interfere with anybody else. Mm -hmm. So they actually keyed up those thrusters and were able to um, adjust the orbit just enough so they had to do the calculations and make sure that adjusting that orbit wasn't going to smash into something else. But they adjusted the orbit just enough so that the two objects wouldn't collide. Now, it's funny because it's just coming out, but it happened last year, like literally a year ago. Oh. But and then, but they just kind of are they trying to are they overall trying to wear, raise awareness of the space junk? Problem? I think so. I mean, they track anything over four inches wide, and that's there's a lot of stuff that's smaller than that. Yeah. But of the seventeen thousand objects they currently track, Oof. only seven percent are actually active satellites. Oh, wow. So the other ones are just junk that's shut down. Huh? Yeah, ninety three percent is just paint flecks debris from satellites that have already smashed into each other, um, you huh. know, wrenches or anything that's been floated away from one of the spacecrafts in the past. You know, astronaut you know, loses a wrench, ah, there goes into orbit. It's, it just stays there. So all of these different things are hanging out there, and we are only interested in 7% of that and want to keep that 7% safe. Yeah. <laughs> and as we see, keeping that 7% safe is hard. Yeah, that's interesting. I wonder if we'll be hearing more about that as time goes on. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Peter. And uh, you don't forget, email SciBite at JupiterBroadcasting.com. And with that filed, it's time for a spacecraft update. Mm-hmm. So we went into high-tech mode when we get started we on spacecraft. All right. What do we got? The Space Shuttle Atlantis. They're in their, their retirement places, and they're getting ready for their displays to open. The right. Atlantis is actually going to start going on display in June. Uh 29th, that's the uh, Space Center complex in Florida. So they, on the 26th, they actually kind of revealed, did the big reveal. They'd had the space shuttle in there, but it had been plastic wrapped, talking about the best, largest Christmas present ever. If you like unwrapping, <laughs> imagine what it was unwrapping the space shuttle. Mm. This was like a space shuttle that had actually been in space. So <laughs> they started cutting back, you know, 16,000 square feet. That's almost 1,500 square meters of shrink wrap. That is a lot of shrink wrap. See, I complain when I get a box in the mail and I'm like, oh, shrink wrap. Right. Tear into it. Tear right. into it. Right. This was quite a bit more shrink wrap. This, now, this, uh, this is definitely not frustration-free packaging. No, it took two days. <laughs> On the first day, they've been able to get the nose, the tail, uh, one of the engines, and the left wing out. And then the next day, they were able to get the right wing and the payload bay. Now, the payload bay, the you know those doors won't actually start opening. Uh, it'll take about two weeks to open sometime during this month. They're going to be really slowly opened one at a time. It's because they're really heavy. They weren't made to open and close like a like a like a you know anything on your in your house right. or at the office. This is for zero gravity. This right. is for in space. 
Right. So they have to take a lot of time to sort of open them and be able to very safely have them in an open position. It's funny because you don't ever think about the fact that they could take advantage of that situation where like, well, we can make these doors super heavy because we don't have to worry about lifting them. <laughs> you know, like they took that into their design consideration. Of course, when it's still on the ground, they obviously had to accommodate for that. But I, I wonder how many other, other little things are inside the shuttle that are are just done a little differently because of the environment this thing was operating in. Yeah, well, there's a lot of, if they, in order to decommission them, there's a lot of things that they had to change. But yeah, I mean, think about it. The, obviously, if it comes, you know, the first things you come to mind, the obvious ones are the, you know, the water closet, the bathroom, whatever you want to call it, the, the kitchen, how to cook your food, you know, the shower, all mm. those type of things. But there are all sorts of other instrumentation and, you know, how to store things and the payload bays and all these things that some of them you just have to design differently. And some of them, the differently designed aspects make it fairly unusable or very, you have to use it very differently in order to use it here. Right. Yeah. They're purpose built. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they've got this one, they've got mounted, you know, hanging in the, well, not hanging, but mounted on some poles, like, 30 feet, 9 meters in the air, and it's being tilted at such a degree that um, it's like it was in space. So they're going to have a big screen behind it sort of displaying an earth sort of rotating. And they've got it tilted with the bay doors open, kind of like it's in orbit, you know, two levels, so you can walk more along the lace, you know, sort of in the middle of where the space shuttle is and then down along the floor. So... It's it's kind of an interesting, so... Sounds like a really nice display, actually. Yeah, well, all of them are obviously really interesting displays. The you know, This one's specifically in Florida. I'm always uh, jealous of, of you for the one that's coming to... Uh, Seattle. The, yeah, Seattle. Yeah. And, um, oh, somebody in the chat room said something about how Texas didn't get one. No, they, they didn't. No. Um, they're getting the space shuttle, one of the big... Um, the big plane that would care, they could carry it across. Oh, the yeah, the, the, like the big 747 right on the top of? Yep, and they're making a model of a, like a very realistic model of the space shuttle itself to put on top of that. Hmm. So they're going to be able to, having their own setup that they're trying to do there. But in this specific case, the space shuttle Atlantis, is, they've opened the, the Christmas present. <laughs> and then they just have to finish off the... Uh, the exhibit and do the finishing touches. So cool. at the end of June, if you happen to be in Florida, totally take pictures. Yeah. Let us know. Send tell, us, us. tell a story, make us jealous. You can always tweet them too, uh, to Heather at JB underscore Mars underscore base. And, yes. Uh, I will, I will respond with jealous, jealous, yeah. jealous emotes. And then she'll put them in the show and then we'll both be jealous in, during the show. <laughs> yep. And all the people in the chat room, we just see that you could just extend the, 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 jealousy all over right. and you could make yourself feel like really awesome yeah so there you go that's your opportunity now it's actually been a pretty busy week for spaceships we have more spaceship updates yes spaceship two this is the virgin galactic this is the one where it's you can pay um two hundred thousand dollars and fly up into they raise it up into an airplane then it releases it uses jets to go up into Space. Now you may say, hey, didn't they do that already? That was what they call Spaceship One. That was just the one guy, the one pilot. So 
This is the one where they could have passengers. So this is right. Yes. Yeah. This yes. is like. And now they've. Is, is this picture real? Yes. Okay. It looks actually, CG. <laughs> I believe so. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's hard it's to tell. Picture, I believe. Yeah. It's picture, it's, this is the picture I think it is. But they've actually lit and ignited the, you know, the, the engine. So they were able to light up the hybrid engine for the first time, reach supersonic speeds. So they're kind of really looking, moving forward on the, on this kind of stepping forward. So that's cool. Wow. I mean, private, real legit spacecrafts that yep. can have Six multiple people at passengers. A time, wow. Two pilots and you get five minutes of weightlessness. You get up to 68 miles, 110 kilometers. Spaceship you were there. That's high enough that you, uh, quote unquote, the, get the, uh, the astronaut wings. It was released at a, uh, altitude of 47,000 feet. Yes. And 45 minutes into its flight. Wow, that's really cool. It's coming, Heather. It's coming along. Pretty soon, yep. we'll, pretty soon we'll be talking to people that, oh, we'll be looking at their Facebook timelines and they'll have, uh, oh, look at that. They went up into space. How not that fun? <laughs> a little, fa- little fun little family trip they had. <laughs> yep. Now, I see it, ju- I see it now. Uh, Cybite Kickstarter program. Send us on, uh, on Spaceship Two. Let's do it. Yeah. That... We'll totally talk about it. Yeah. Absolutely. One whole show. That would be nothing bad. Um, we could do it. We could, if we did a Kickstarter from it, I think we could totally milk a whole episode out of it. I think we really could. Yeah. All right. So uh, we talk a lot about curiosity all the time, but uh, every now and then it's great when we have an opportunity to talk about opportunity. Very clever. <laughs> Thanks. Nod my head, trying to be very convincing. <laughs> um, so we just came out of conjunction, which was where the sun was sitting right between right. Mars and Earth, which means that. You know, we talked a lot about Curiosity News, how it was going to die down, mm-hmm. but it also meant that Opportunity went into standby mode or went into uh, you know, silent acting mode, as did the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter. But Opportunity, they actually found when it came back, they saw that it put itself into standby auto mode, hmm. which meant that at some point on the 22nd of April, it, sent, it was doing routine camera check that we had programmed it to do. And it sensed some problem. It said, I see something wrong. It's doing something weird. So it stopped what it was doing and it put it into this mode where it says, all it does is maintains a power balance and waits for instructions. So it just holds there, stops, doesn't go anywhere and just kind of waits for Earth or NASA to to tell it what's going on and to sort of help. Right. So once it got back in touch, they were able to prepare a new set of commands that would get things back to normal, sent it up. Everything apparently is working as it should be now. So, Hello, Earth. Hello, Earth. That's what it sounded like when it goes into standby mode, right? Kind of sounds like that. Kinda. All right. Well, good. Well, you know, and while we're on Mars, should we uh, head over to Curiosity, do a Curiosity update? Go. And lift off of the Atlas V with Curiosity. Wow, listen how excited they are. Wow, they're excited. It really sticks with you. All right, Heather, so what is our favorite rover up to? Alrighty, the team that was in charge of landing Curiosity rover. That was where they came in. They had the parachutes. Yeah, that was awesome. Down, and they had the jetpack, lowered it down on a little, uh, you know, on a Crane, rope. sky crane. 
Yep, on its little sky crane. Right. Topped it off, and then the sky crane flew off. Yeah. The team that was in charge of that actually was able to win a Smithsonian Award for Current Achievement Honors and Outstanding Achievements in the Field of Aerospace, Science, and Technology. Well, it so is the, one of the coolest remote landings I've ever heard of. Yeah, a couple of different planetary mission teams from NASA have won in previous years. Okay. Um, I think last year it was uh, Cassini's mission to Saturn. But the, that team got their moment in the sun more because everyone was definitely impressed with what they did. So now they have the little Smithsonian Award to go That's with it. awesome. You know, what was so cool about that, not only did they nail... Uh, you know, a landing that could have technically had some snafus. Let's let's be yeah. clear here, right? Just a few. <laughs> Just a few. Just a but, few ways that could have gone horribly, horribly wrong. But they also landed in a fantastic area to explore, which yep. obviously was, you know, intended, which is awesome. And then mm-hmm. we, which we've talked about before, they got that amazing shot from the reconnaissance orbiter of it actually landing. I mean, the whole thing all put together is like Hollywood could barely even do that. Like yep. the best directors in Hollywood, that's how they would plan their shots and their <laughs> for it all to go down. Sometimes science is so awesome, not even Hollywood could believe. Thought good for them getting an award. I say they deserve yes. two. That's what I think, Heather. Yep. So, and uh-huh. if you are of the um, persuasion that you like can come up with things like a haiku, then actually the team is in charge of. They are looking to. I could put more uh, details once I find it again, that you can submit a haiku and if it want about going to Mars and if it actually wins, they will be sending that <laughs> to the rover. <laughs> so I think like everyone, um, I think everyone who submits by a certain date, I think your name goes up. And then if you, uh, if you actually win your haiku goes up. <laughs> so that's, kind of amazing (laughs) yeah all right well something else that's kind of amazing is this here show actually has its very own time machine are you ready to jump in it heather i think so let's go here we go all right the door's got a nice latch to it now it does i figured they were sciencey all right yeah this week the time machine takes us to just 55 years ago this week in science may 1st 1958 what happened the discovery of the Van Allen radiation belts that surround the Earth. So this is uh, an article covered the report by the discoverer, James A. Van Allen. Um, so it was this symposium where they used data from a number of different space probes that were in the Earth's magnetosphere region and were able to reveal the existence of these radiation belts. Mm. So these concentrated concentrations of electrically charged particles. It's kind of funny because think about it, that's data in the data. Right, yeah. It wasn't, it a speci- it wasn't specifically, nothing was specifically sent up, should I say, to look at this. It was he used the data from other space probes and saw it and went, hey, this actually is showing me other information. This is showing me these specific magnet regions where you're seeing radiation. Van Allen. Hmm. I'm not speaking very correctly. Van, Van A. Allen. Van Allen, yeah. Van, Van Allen. Yeah, the, yeah. 
I've heard the only time I've ever really heard these mentioned is when I'm watching conspiracy theories about going to the moon. But my understanding <laughs> is it's like the Earth sort of holds these belts of radiation. And they have their various purposes for us. Like yes, yeah. Uh, and did they, didn't we just recently talk about how they might be larger than we originally thought too? Yes. Yeah. I Indeed. So. so there might be another layer or larger or a third set. Yeah. If I recall correctly. Very cool. All right, Heather. Well, let me retune the side by 2000. Plug this button in here. And, oh, now we can look up into the sky. What do we got? I is right. On Thursday, May the 9th, we're going to have new moon about 830 Eastern uh, daylight time in the northwest. And on Friday, the May the 10th, about 30 minutes after sunset, you might be able to see a really, really thin crescent moon near Venus. Now, it's you might need binoculars to see it so thin. And that is because if you live in parts of Australia, the Central Pacific, uh, Indonesia, Hawaii, you might be able to see an annular eclipse. Now, annular, A-N-N-U-L-A-R. That's not like a regular eclipse that you might think where, you know, moon passes in front of the sun, sun everything blacks out. The, the moon is not always the exact same distance from the Earth. If it's a little bit uh, farther away, then it's not the same size. Think, you know, hold up your fist at arms at about, bend your elbow so it's a little bit, you know, bent. Now move your fist away and it's taking up a slightly smaller space. So if it's a little bit farther away, then you get, when the moon passes in front of the sun, you actually see this ring of sun that's around it still. So you can see the the ring of fire. So you can see, so if you live in any of those areas, you'll actually be able to see that. There's a link in the show notes about uh, more detailed maps and locations about where you are and when you might be able to see it. Cool. The rest of us will be very jealous. Should you be able to see it, again, contact us. You, see, everyone can make us jealous. Yeah. It's all, you yeah. can get your name on the show and make us jealous that we didn't get to see the awesomeness that you see. We make it easy for you to make us jealous. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nice, Heather. Nice. Yep. All right. And on, oh, yes, go ahead. Oops, sorry. On Saturday, May the 11th, look to the west at early twilight. You'll be able to see the crescent moon. You'll actually be able to see it then below Jupiter. So in general, Venus, you can spy it about 15, 20 minutes after sunlight, sunset in the west to northwest. Jupiter will be the first quote-unquote star that you'll see come out in the west after sunlight sunset each day throughout the week is going to be getting you're going to it's going to come out a little bit lower each day and it's going to move towards the horizon as the night goes on and saturn we talked about um in the last few shows that it was at opposition which meant it was the earth sat directly between mm -hmm. the sun and uh, saturn which meant the rings got brighter there for a really short period of time but the but it's still you can still see the rings fairly good fairly it has a very good uh, observation right now, so you can see it in the east to southeast. So in, still, uh, good, still good time to spot Saturn's rings. Yes. Very good. Very good. All right. Anything else? No. That brings us to the end, then, and Heather has all of that outlined in the show notes. If you missed any of that or want a reminder of any of that, as well as links to everything else that we covered in the show. As always, extensive stuff in the show notes, right? Because... Yes. It's good to have a little extra sciencey goodness to read, I suppose. And science likes to have references as well. Indeed. All right, Heather. Well, thank you for the great show. 
Thank you. And thank you, everyone, for tuning in to this week's episode of SciBite. Now, don't forget, SciBite's live on Tuesdays at 7.30 p.m. over at jblive.tv. But we're out for downloads Wednesday mornings over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. You can subscribe and get the show weekly. And then you don't even have to think about it. All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of SciBite. We'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>